0: Well, Jack and Jill went up the hill, right? And they got into a fight. They got into a conflict. Isn't that how the story goes? Isn't that why Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill came tumbling after? Well, probably not, but perhaps you can relate to that. I remember uh, as a teenager, uh, one night, late at night, getting a phone call from my dad asking if I could come pick him up. He was a physician at UNC hospitals. He began working in the emergency room and uh, through the years um, worked in the um, anesthesia department. And uh, one night, about 1 o'clock in the morning, he called me up and said, I need you to come pick me up. I'm all done. So I picked him up. We were driving through downtown Chapel Hill And he said, let's stop by the Burger King. I haven't had a bite to eat all day. And so we pulled into the Burger King. And we sat over in this booth right over here. And a few minutes later, a fight broke out over here. And two guys were just going at it, two college students, just in each other's face. And my dad got up. And he walked into the fray. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? (laughs) And he grabbed this guy by the collar. And he grabbed this guy by the collar. And he said, men, knock it off. And they cowered. And they stopped. And we had a superficial version of peace. And we got back in the car. And I'm sitting there scratching my head. And I said, Dad, I've never seen you do anything like that. Why did you do that? And he said, Greg, I've been in the emergency room all day, and I don't want to go back. <laughs> I don't need another fight. Every one of us can relate to conflict, can't we? Every one of us can walk into the meeting and say, My name is, and I get into conflicts. It is the human condition. It is a deep, deep struggle. It's my struggle. Uh, I've been getting to know many of you. Uh, you've been uh, wonderfully humble and honest and said, you know, it's, it's my struggle. Uh, as I have opportunity throughout this year, uh, with God's help, I want to try to connect the riches of Christ to a particular reality of life, a problem in living, And this morning, we're going to consider quarrels and fights and conflicts and ungodly anger and our struggle with that. But I want this to be practical, and as we go along, I want you to be thinking along these sorts of questions. Who is the person that I fight with often? Is it your brother? Your sister? Your mom? Dad? Your child? your spouse, your roommate, your boss or co-worker, or your next-door neighbor, your pastor? And what form does your conflict often take? Some of us are quiet. The silence kills. Some of us are flamethrowers, and we bring out the heavy artillery and we go on the attack, whereas others of us back up on defense and avoid. Sometimes it's a mere skirmish, sometimes it's all-out nuclear war. What's it look like for you? But more importantly, what would it look like for God to step into the chaos? To step into the battle? For the Spirit of God to go to the front lines with the intentions of making you into a peacemaker. To love you so much that he would grab you by the collar. To wake you up to the battle that's really going on. And to show you what he gives in order that you might change from a warmaker into a peacemaker. God's Word is exactly about our struggle. Let's see how from James chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 12. God speaking through His servant James. Who is wise and understanding among you? By His good conduct, let Him show His works in the meekness of wisdom. open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge? Your neighbor. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are A loving, skillful surgeon. And with the scalpel of your word, you seek to cut in order to heal. And so, searcher of our hearts, the one who has the cure for what ails us, we pray that you would help us. That you would open our eyes and give our hearts receptivity to what you say. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's our path this morning. We're going to first look at the way of the war maker. Secondly, the way of the life changer. And finally, the way of the peace maker. Let's start with the way of the war maker. In chapter 4, verse 1, James puts the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, the conventional wisdom, the secular counsel, locates the cause out there you get angry i get angry so it is said because the other person is stupid because your father reacted that way because the person in front of you does not know how to drive because our hormones are raging because our core needs are not being met because You came home after a rotten day at work because our genetics are hardwired, because we woke up on the wrong side of the bed, because you're hungry and the pantry is empty, and the list goes on. But the common theme is the problem, the cause of quarrels and fights is something outside of you. And me. The Bible has another biblical category for that. James uses it earlier in the book, chapter one trials and temptations. And they are very significant, but they are influences, never ultimate causes. It's a very important distinction to make. Yes, significant trials. Yes, significant temptations, but they influence they never determine. The biblical wisdom is revealed in the text. The problem is not out there. The problem is in me. The problem is in all of us. It's the heart. God's gaze searches and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that raises the question, what does God see when he searches the heart? Well, first of all, he sees a demanding heart. Did you notice that in verses 1, 2, and 3, chapter 4? It is this. Your passions are at war within you. Literally, your passions are your pleasures are at war it's the image of siege warfare in the ancient near east soldiering toward the castle marching on digging in becoming entrenched fighting for control that's the image james says soldiering renegade out of control desires seek to get control of our hearts. And so, I want. And everything's fine as long as the W is lowercase. But when it escalates into a capital, I want, it becomes a ruling desire. Even a good desire, when it takes on the status of a controlling desire, leads to... War-making. I want becomes I demand. Something I want comes to be seen as something I need. I must have this, and I'll do anything, including going to war, to get what I really crave. But when we are ruled by our cravings, God teaches, we become corrupt. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight, and quarrel. You want something for yourself. I never knew how much I craved respect until I had children. Two boys. Now, respect for a father, right, is a good thing. Until it becomes a controlling thing. And throughout the years, what do kids do? What did I do as a kid? I failed. I often spoke disrespectfully. And when my desire was crossed, oh, it bore bad fruit. Yeah. Can you relate to this? Something you want for yourself, respect, acceptance, peace and quiet, clean house, whatever it might be, You wake up in the world, and it does not give you what you crave. Disrespect instead. Rejection instead. Noise. Messy. And so you roll your eyes. You might even curse under your breath. You might speak a word of sarcasm. You might scream. You might push. You might shove. You might, Lord forbid, pull the trigger. The biblical explanation is straightforward. We fight because our dug-in demand is frustrated. That's what God sees when He opens the books, the demanding heart. But that's not the only thing that He sees. Did you notice verse 11 and 12, He also sees a self-exalting heart. James highlights one expression of anger. Did you notice verse 11 Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And then, in the second part of the verse, he exposes the heart that drives the anger. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. It's kind of like this. The heart says, the heart is always interpreting. The heart speaks, the heart thinks, The heart believes, you know, I know God's law commands me to build up my neighbor, but that's a bad law. I want to tear my neighbor down. Anger, ungodly anger, our response to a crossed will, a perceived evil, my will is the will that matters, and you crossed me, so I curse you. it's the self-exalting heart and James exposes it even more candidly there's only one lawgiver and judge he who is able to save and destroy but who are you and who am i to judge your neighbor who are we i like the way david pallison counselor professor Puts it, who are we? We are a God wannabe. We're playing God. And notice, we're acting like the devil himself who exalts himself and accuses the brethren, nagging, attacking, and condemning. The demanding heart, the self-exalting heart, and notice how God evaluates what he sees. Verse 4, you adulterous people. God has joined Himself to His people. There's a tie that binds. He's entered into a covenant with His people. But we drift. We defect. We break the covenant. Our selfish cravings, they're never neutral or isolated, but they're always committed and they are always God-related. We either want what He wants or we want something else. And notice, this is very, very important, the greater conflict, there's something behind the horizontal conflict, something more fundamental. The real hostility is vertically. The horizontal conflict with my neighbor reveals a more fundamental vertical conflict with my Creator and Redeemer. We break the second commandment, love your neighbor, because we've first broken the first great commandment, love God with all of our hearts, and the horizontal only expresses the vertical. James poses two questions. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? our worship has become disordered and that's the cause of conflict but there's hope and I want to linger here the way of the life changer yes this is the way of the war maker but what's the way of the life changer how does change happen The Secular Conventional counsel says clarify your expectations. If you're angry, count to 10 and cool down, and if you're really angry, count to 100. Watch your body language, listen carefully and repeat what the person said, rephrase your concerns and objections in non-threatening ways, non-condemning ways. And these are all helpful. We can learn from unbelievers. This is is common grace wisdom. But it doesn't go deep enough. It's ultimately shallow because it's missing the heart of the problem. We can do all of those skills, all of those techniques for selfish ends. We can do all of that to actually manipulate people to get what we lust for. There's got to be a better way. How do war makers in the image of the devil really change into peacemakers in the image of Jesus? It's not in self-isolation, withdrawing, looking inside, digging deep, trying to change, but it's through a relational transaction. Notice first, God promises the cure for what ails us. Verse 6, it's so succinct, you could skate right over it. But it's the key to the whole passage. He gives more grace. The sense is triumphant grace. Conquering grace. However deep the problem, however strong the lust, He gives more grace. More conquering, triumphant grace. There's a Gospel for that. He never tires of working to save us, to rescue us. He gives a river of grace that never runs dry. Imagine a boxing ring. In one corner, there you are. Filled with jealousy and selfish ambition. Overflowing in a life of disorder and every evil practice that James references in chapter 3. But in this corner is your Redeemer. And His heart is filled with an unswerving commitment to rescue you in and through His beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. All because of what happened on Friday and all because of what happened on Sunday. You are united to this person through faith, Christian What a comfort. That God's grace is greater than our sin. That God's grace is the double cure. How so? He gives forgiving grace. Greater than the guilt of your sin. The anger, just anger of God falls not on you, but on Jesus for you. It's greater than the guilt of our sin. His anger turns away from us. And perhaps you're like me, sometimes you say, no, the guilt of my sin is is too great. It's just too great. You don't understand. If you only knew. And he looks you in the eye, and he speaks the truth in love, and he says, I give you more grace. I give you forgiving grace. Would you please not insult me? Would you please believe me? I give you more grace than the guilt of your sin. I really do, he says in Jesus. But secondly, it gets even better. He gives renewing grace. Renewing grace that is greater than the power of our sin. The Spirit of God comes near to dwell within you. And you, if you're like me, you sometimes say, "No, you... I don't think you really understand. This has such a grip on me. This craving is so strong. I cannot escape the black hole. And he says, I do understand. And I give you more grace, more conquering, triumphant grace. Would you please start believing me? I give you more grace in Jesus how does God change us through a relational transaction and on the one side from God's side he promises the cure for what ails you I give more grace but there's someone else in the relationship you and me so number two God commands a response to the promise that he makes it's His grace through our repentant faith. Therefore, it says, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James here, reaching back to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, to express the condition, repentant faith. So how does God change us? What happens on our side? James speaks ten commands. And at first glance, it seems like a haphazard list. But on closer inspection, he's mapping out a deliberate path. He's taking us down a stairway to humility. There's a beginning. There's a middle. There's an end. At the start, notice verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. This is not passive. This is very active. The sense here is the notion of enlistment. Of swearing allegiance to your commanding officer in order to fight under his banner kids have you ever seen one of those videos where someone got confused on the basketball court they caught the ball and they ran in the wrong direction and they laid it up and scored two points for the other team it's happened to me we get disoriented and we find ourselves fighting against God instead of for God. So the text begins with this enlistment, this pledging of allegiance of coming under His his mastery, taking sides. Taking sides. And notice how how God-centered and relational is this response. If the conflict horizontally with my neighbor was fueled by dethroning God, then peace will only come by enthroning God. If the conflict began with, I want my way, so my will be done, then the conflict will only turn when we come to say, I want I want Your way. I want Your will to be done in my life. So that's how it starts, but it moves through the middle. And James gives us three sets of commands to lead us down the stairway into humility. The first pair could be summed up with the one word, come. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Fight to live near Him. Fight for the gift of His presence. Because fellowship with God is not something that we just sort of drift into. It's something we must fight for. By maybe making diligent use of the means of grace, of fellowship with God's people, with time in the morning in God's Word, prayer, worship, Putting ourselves in the path where his grace runs. And when we sense that God draws near, we begin to sense our need for cleansing. That's the second pair of commands that can be summed up in the one word wash. Wash. And at one level, cleanse your hands, you sinners, speaking of our external behavior. But at a deeper level, purify your hearts, you double minded. Our internal motives. And why both? Because the rotten word came from a rotten root. The heart wags the tongue. And so we we wake up, we we own up, and we we fess up. Because I broke the first great commandment, I confess my sin to God. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, the Apostle John writes. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think we're uh, perhaps familiar with that side of our confession, but maybe not so wise and skillful in The horizontal side. Because my breaking the first great commandment translated into breaking the second greatest commandment, I confess my sin to my neighbor. Very important. I never say if, and I never say but, and I never say maybe. It's all avoiding responsibility and not taking ownership. You know, I'm sorry if what I said offended you. Never. Instead, be specific. I said this to you. This is what I said. And this is why I said it. Specific. Sorrow. I am so grieved that I hurt you. I see the impact that what I said had on you. And I never want to do that again. And with God's help, I'm going to make every effort not to. And then you ask forgiveness. Perhaps this is the hardest part because you're now making yourself vulnerable. It's now out of your hands. You're not in control. You ask forgiveness will you please forgive me for what I said? So we see our need for cleansing. And we find much cause for weeping. And that's the final pair of commands summed up in the word grieve. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy. Your joy to gloom. It's not that James is a killjoy who's denying a place for joy and laughter in the Christian life. He's simply seeking to wake us up from a shallow joy, a fragile laughter, and eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die Way of living. A scornful laughter that, that, that refuses to take sin seriously. And so he leads us into the blessing that Jesus promises. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he sums it up at the end. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. I promise. This is who He is. This is what He does. We'll close with this. The way of the war maker, the way of the life changer, and the way of peacemakers Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Verse 12, chapter 3. Don't tell me all about your wisdom. This is what they do in the show me state down in Missouri. Show me. Show me. So what does wisdom look like, act like, talk like, right down to the details of daily living? It's not a heart ruled by jealousy and selfish ambition that overflows in disorder and every evil practice that's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. But it's wisdom from above. Verse 17, chapter 3. It's by the Spirit, in the image of Jesus, the very incarnation of wisdom. By the Spirit, Jesus grew in wisdom. He was the bearer of the Spirit in order that He might be the bestower of the Spirit to make us wise in Him. Let me just give you a few examples that James gives us. First, pure. Not the folly of a divided heart that claims loyalty to Jesus on Sunday, but pours out angry sewage on Monday. No, wisdom is... Simple, pure, undivided to will one thing. I want what God wants. Then peaceable. Not the folly of the angry fool who is defensive and aggressive and critical and self-justifying and scoring points, but wisdom that is teachable and forbearing and kind and concerned about the other's good. Gentle. Not the angry fool who feels ignored and misunderstood and used and reviled and plots and rages, but wisdom who is often misunderstood and used and reviled, and yet gentle in the image of Jesus. Open to reason. Not the angry fool who hears in a distorted way and speaks in a selective way. For whatever proves you wrong and me right, but wisdom, willing and able to to listen to what is true and constructive, a fair hearing and full of mercy. I've received so much mercy. And so, wisdom gives mercy, and it's filled with all kinds of good fruits, and it's impartial. Not like the angry fool who is unable to discuss his or her sins. Accurately. But like wisdom. Able to to hear a person give you constructive feedback without any defensiveness. Without having to have the last word. But wisdom. And sincere. Not the angry fool who is hypocritical holding to a different standard. And judging others for the really tiny sins. And then goes off and carries out the big ones. But wisdom without hypocrisy. Harvest Church, look at verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What a picture of what can be And what will be by Jesus as the seed of the gospel of peace gets inside of us and transforms us into war makers or from war makers into peacemakers. And we sow the gospel in our relationships and we reap this harvest, this wonderful harvest of relationships that are good and right and constructive. Isn't that what we want? That is exactly what we want. And that is exactly what God gives. Let's let's ask God for it now. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you cut in order to heal, that you have the goods, the conquering grace, to change us from war makers into peacemakers through the peacemaker, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, this good news would get more and more traction in our hearts in order that we might be an instrument of your peace. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's conclude our worship by singing Wonderful, Merciful Savior. Now may the God of peace, who, through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus, to whom belongs glory forever and ever. Amen.